Genesis 16 uh, takes us to the story I've entitled this message, God's Heart for the Hurting. You know, on Mother's Day, we honor mothers. We have, a, you know, mothers, they have a very difficult but very rewarding job. Mothering is a sacrifice. This is a sacrifice just to get the baby in the world. I mean, when I've seen what my wife has done uh, multiple times to bring children into the world, it's very humbling uh, as a father. Um, and, you know, being a mom is, is not something that everybody sees. It's hard to imagine a more important job than being a mother, but it's the kind of job that people just don't see. It's not out in the news. It doesn't officially contribute to the, the, the GDP of our country, which I think is a shame. Like in the statistics, I'm saying, you know, the statistics, they don't know how to, how to deal with it. Moms just, they contribute so much. And sometimes moms can feel invisible as if nobody sees what they're doing. Nobody recognizes how hard their job is. Maybe you moms have felt that way more than once. You might feel, feel invisible. Uh, but the beautiful thing about our God that we serve is that no matter how invisible you feel, our God sees you and he knows you and he loves you. In fact, we have a story here in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. We get in chapter 16. We've so far met Abraham or Abram and Sarai. Their names were changed later to Abraham and Sarah. They've been given promises by God that revolve around children, that revolve around having children. These children would, uh, this child, this son would form into a great nation, and this nation, uh, through him, the, the, the Redeemer would come. God has given them promises, and they've left their home and have gone to follow God's leading. Right? They've gone and left their place of comfort and gone to wherever God would lead them. And they're, they're actually living in a reality a lot of us find ourselves in, where God has made promises to us, and we have yet to see those promises to be fulfilled yet. We are trusting in Him. We are believing in God. But the focus this morning really isn't on Abram and Sarai. It's on Sarai's maid, an Egyptian woman named Hagar. And we're going to look at this woman and the struggle she went through and God's promises to her this morning. Father, we ask that you open up our hearts to your truth, and that you give me the words to say as we look into your word. And Father, we just ask for your presence to be felt among us in a convicting way, but also in an encouraging way, that you would take those who struggle with these fears and these difficulties, and you would encourage them and bind them up, bind up their wounds, and let them know that you love them, you, you hear them, you see them, because you have a heart of compassion for those who experience hurt. And bless us now as we look into your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 16, we're going to see the first uh, step along the stories that God sees the hurting. God sees the hurting. Let's read with me in verse 1 through 2. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of his wife, Sarah. I see Hagar here is a victim of many different things. Hagar is a, a maid in Sarai's guard or in her keep. And at first we see that she is a, a victim of unbelief, an unbelief on the, on the, wor- on, on the part of her, her master and her mistress. But you notice what happens here right off the bat is that the relationship of this story is established. It says that Abram's wife is Sarai, and Abram's wife has given him no children. This creates a problem because God's promise to Abram revolved around children. And in fact, Sarai is looking at her life and saying, Lord, you promised me a family and I have nobody, but I have this maid 
And in fact, in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 16, we have this little inserted detail that says, now uh, he, Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, and male and female servants, female donkeys and camels, given to Abram. And perhaps this was the moment where Hagar came into Abraham's family, Abram's household. He he welcomes in this female servant, and the conflict of this story goes deeply because Abram was promised, as I mentioned earlier, by God that he would have children. It says in chapter 15 that after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He's saying, There's this there's no children. I have no children. So if you bless me, that's fine. But where does it go after I die? You, you promised me a, a great nation, and all I have is this probably second cousin or somebody out there who's going to inherit everything I have. And then, then, then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring, no seed. Indeed, one born in my house is an heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall be, not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now towards the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Previously, Abraham was wondering what God would do, how God could possibly bless him this way. But Sarai being barren, it says in chapter 11 in verse 30, being barren, not having any children means that she's getting older and God's promises seems to be fading further and further into the past. And they have to choose at this point whether they would believe God's words or act on their own. And I think a lot of us find ourselves in these situations where we have to choose whether we're going to believe God or we're going to do something out of our own behavior or we're going to do something ourselves. So Sarai's response is like many of our responses. She blames God. Look at verse 2. She says, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. She says, God has prevented me. God, it's fault that I don't have any kids. Now, in one way, she's correct that it's true. The Lord is the one who opens the womb, but I think Sarah's timetable was not the same as God's timetable, and she being the instigator of this story because she would not believe the Lord, she, she falls into a cultural norm of their time. Now, what happens next is very odd to us and very strange to us. It would not have been strange in the ancient world. If you study ancient uh, laws, there are so many ancient laws that deal with the situation of a, a wife who is barren, who has a, a servant who she gives to her husband to bear children, basically as like a surrogate mother. And the way that most of these situations worked is that the child being born would belong to the master and his wife, not to the woman who bore the child. And the master would go into this slave woman and have a child with her. And this, this was part of the custom of this time. In fact, it says here in verse, in verse 2 that, that Sarai gave her maid. He said, please go to my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children by her. She says, I want my children. But apparently God's not giving me children by me, uh, by my womb. This is Sarah speaking. So just, just have, my, have my maid go into her. And perhaps through her, I will have a, a child. And she is, she is not believing what God said to her. And because of this, she puts Hagar in a bad situation and that she is the instigator. She's the one who, who gets Abram. He, he heeds her voice, the voice of his wife. He falls into the trap of unbelief. And I think Hagar is a victim of this unbelief and that Sarai used Hagar for her own benefit. She was trying to use her so she might have a child. Think of being in Hagar's situation at this point. If you get pregnant, you bear a child, and that child no longer belongs to you. It now belongs to your master's wife. You've just been used. She was a victim, and God sees the hurting. She was a victim of 
unbelief. She was a victim of manipulation. Look at verse 3. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan, so he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. They'd been in Canaan for 10 years, no children. The Lord had not given them children. But look at the words here. It says she took Hagar. That is, she used Hagar. She manipulated Hagar. It calls her her maid. Again, the emphasis is on the relationship and that she is an Egyptian, and he, she gave her to Abram, once again using words of manipulation, using her, this woman who's foreign-born. Her status would have been lower than Sarai's. It would have been easy for Sarai to rationalize what she was doing. She doesn't count, she might have thought. She's not as important as I am, yet what happens in verse 4 is that Abram goes in. He went into Hagar. I mean, they had sexual intercourse, and when the Bible says that Hagar conceived, it's, it, the idea is that she conceived immediately, which is a huge contrast to Sarai, who had been trying to conceive and had not. And what happens next is that the Bible says Sarai became despised. The word despised is used in verse 3 of chapter 12 for the idea of curse. In other words, it, becomes that, it becomes obvious to us that, that Hagar takes pride in her pregnancy. She looks down on Sarai, who could not conceive. It's almost like she says, that wasn't so hard, was it? I mean, come on. Now, Hagar is, is, is not blameless in this at all. In fact, the word here, to, 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 as I mentioned, it means to curse. It means that she spoke poorly of her mistress. She may have been speaking to her face or behind her back, but she was speaking poorly of Sarai, and this creates a huge problem because then, as a victim of unbelief and now a victim of manipulation by Sarai, now the completely predictable result happens, and she becomes the victim of sinful anger. In that, look at verse 5. Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. Sarai is immediately jealous of the slave woman, and like even the garden, she blames someone else for her own decision. She's the one who brought her maid and gives her to her husband. She's the one who does this. Her husband falls into this sin as well, but she blames her husband even though she was the one who gave her slave to her husband. She was doing just what she had been told to do, and the outcome, the pregnancy, was not only her intended aim, but it was the very predictable outcome of what would happen, and she gets mad. And this is the truth, is that sinful anger is a predictable response when we disobey God. Every time we disobey God, we, can, we, will make, we think something will make us happy. We think something will resolve our problem. We think, oh, I can, I can figure a way out of this. But in the end, it ends up frustrating us. It ends up angering us. Sin never keeps His promises. And that's what happened here. That she, she turns on her husband and she gets mad at him. She gets angry. And the jealousy she has just pour off the page. It's like she says, this isn't fair. And it's unclear in the text whether she's saying, my wrong, the thing I did that was wrong is your fault, or may the wrong done to me be on your head. It's unclear. But either way, she's angry at her husband. She's angry at God. And she says, the Lord judge you. It's a curse against Abram. She basically curses her husband to his face. 
This is the kind of thing that, that, that shows her, her pain and her appealing to God. We actually see this a couple other places in Scripture. This phrase happens when David speaks to Saul. He says, let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. The, the, the image there is that, is that of vengeance. David is saying, let God be the one to do vengeance. I won't do it. And this is what she's saying here is that God will get you back for what you did to me. Very, very harsh. Even later, in 1 Samuel 24, 15, therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case. Clearly, Sarai does not take responsibility for the problem that she has created. She sees the world against her. She does not realize she is the one who's been abusive. She has brought harm on Hagar through the circumstances. Her actions have splintered the family and caused problems. This creates huge conflict in the home. Hagar has been victimized by an unreasonable, manipulative, angry, and unbelieving woman. But God sees the hurting, and God sees those who hurt. And God not only sees the hurting, her her situation is actually going to get worse because God ends up pursuing the mistreated. Look with me as Hagar qualifies as a mistreated person in this story. Sarai, threatened by Hagar's success, complains, and Abram gives her in the hand of Sarai to do whatever she wishes. Look at verse 6. She is first forsaken by her family. So Abram said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. In other words, do what's right in your eyes, what's good in your eyes. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. We see here Abram's betrayal. Abram betrayed her. He gives this maid into the hands of his angry, vindictive wife. Sarah can do whatever she wants to with him because Abram had neglected Hagar. He had neglected his responsibility to protect those in his household, and he gives her to this woman, his wife, who wants to do whatever she wants to with him. Notice he doesn't want to do this himself. He hands her over do whatever she pleases. Also, notice Sarai's harshness as well. She deals harshly. That says here she oppressed her or she mistreated her. The word mistreated or abused here or dealt harshly has the idea of making someone crouch or be hunched over. It's that Sarai was so mean to her that she was just curling up in a fetal position. She was bowed down. She was weak. She was oppressed, and she was humiliated. This word is often translated abuse even in terms of sexual violence, as in Genesis 34. This is not pleasant stuff. Sarai's behavior was completely inappropriate. It was completely sinful. She was part of the family. Hagar was part of the family, but she was forsaken. She was, she was treated worse than a slave. And we notice in Psalm 27.10, we have a promise from God that when my father and my mother, when my family forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. And that's what we see in this story because we see Hagar's flight. Because of the harshness and the mistreatment, from her mistress, she, fly, she flees into the wilderness. She sees safety being away from her mistress. She's willing to flee to get away from the pain she's enduring. Look at verse 7 to 8. We'll see not only is she forsaken by her family, but she's found by the Lord. And this is where the, the most amazing part of the story begins to come up. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by a spring on the way to shore. In the wilderness, there are no people. In the wilderness, there's desert. There's no civilization. You're kicked out of the house to wander, essentially to die there. And while Hagar is in the wilderness, she finds a spring where she can survive. There she is drinking water. It's beside the road, place where she stops for refreshment. But the angel of the Lord finds her there. 
God pursues her with the angel of the Lord. And the way this text is written, it's like the angel of the Lord is out looking for this woman and he finds her. She had been forsaken by her family, but not by God. I love these verses out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4 says, The Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you. If you keep reading in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 6, it says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And these verses are quoted in Hebrews 13, 5. It says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When people forget about you, when people forsake you, when people disown you, people abandon you, people abuse you, God pursues the forsaken. God chases after and embraces, and God is looking for those who've been mistreated so that he might show his covenant love and kindness to them. And what's most amazing about this is that she comes into face-to-face with the angel of the Lord, and this is not just any angel. When it talks about the angel of the Lord in the Bible, we have a rare instance of a theophany. That is what I believe is an interaction of a person with the Lord himself taking on a form so the person can interact with them. We often describe this as a Christophany. That is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, showing himself as the angel of the Lord. This is not just an angel. This is the angel of the Lord, and God shows up. In these verses, we see the angel identified as God. We see the angel recognized as as God. Later in the Bible, the angel of the Lord is described in terms befitting deity alone. He is is calling himself God, Genesis 31 in verse 11 and in verse 13. He even receives worship. We have several instances of this. The angel of the Lord also speaks with divine authority. And we notice here that she recognizes she is speaking with God. The Lord then speaks to Hagar in verse 8. He says, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she says, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. She experiences something that very few people have ever experienced. She speaks with the angel of the Lord. But I want you to notice in verse 8 the most dramatic moment of the story so far. That up to this point in this story, Hagar has been called a maid. Sarah called her her maid or her servant to her husband. Her husband called her your maid or your servant. No one has called her by name until now. No one has called her by name until the angel of the Lord looks at her and says, Hagar, this is a God who knows you and is pursuing you. God knows you. He knows your name. He knows everything about you. Even when other people dehumanize you, if they talk about down about you, if they don't like you, if they say bad things about you, if they don't treat you well, God knows you and God loves you. Even if you have brought some of this on yourself, as Hagar did, and she fled in the wilderness, God knows you and God loves you and God sees the hurting. He says, he says here, Hagar, Sarai's maid. Verse 2 calls her her maid. Verse 5, I give my maid. Verse 6, indeed your maid. And each of these times, just calling her maid, yet the Lord calls her by name, Hagar, Sarai's maid. Then he asks her a question, where have you come from and where are you going? And she answers, I'm fleeing the presence, the face of my mistress, Sarai. God also directs the afflicted. God directs, God sees, God pursues, and God directs, having been mistreated and hurt, having been used and abused, finding herself pregnant and without a home, God shows compassion on this hurting woman. He directs her and cares for her. Look at verse eight, verse 9. How does God direct? God directs in two ways here. First, he directs through instruction. 
The angel of the Lord said, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. The angel of the Lord, God himself, I believe, begins by instructing Hagar to return and submit. He says, go, and he directs through direct instruction. He tells her what she must do. And today, God tells us what we must do. God divinely teaches us, divinely directs us. How? Through instruction in his word. When God directs, we should follow his direction. We should not expect blessings from God and promises from God if we do not obey the directions from God. And here, God gives direction. He directs through instructions, and he directs through promises. Look at verse 10. We see promises in verse 10, and he says, the angel of the Lord said, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so they will not be counted for multitude. I will multiply your children, just like Abraham received a promise that God, that he would bear a child and start a nation, so Hagar receives such a promise. She will multiply her descendants and her seed exceedingly great. She will have a lot of children, and there will be so many they cannot be counted. Look at verse 11. He begins to talk about the blessings. He says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. God tells her a child will be a son. And the name he gives is Ishmael, which means God hears me. And notice why she should name her son. He says, you should name your son because God has heard your affliction. God has heard your pain. God has heard your, your hurting. God has heard. And every time she would talk to her child or, or mention her child's name, she would call, her name Ishmael, or call his name Ishmael. She would remember that God heard her. She was in the wilderness, and no one would hear her. No one would listen to her. No one would pay attention to her. And as she fled in the wilderness there, this mother, this new mom, this, this one, this pregnant woman in the wilderness, God heard her cries. God knows, God sees, God knows when we're afflicted. He sees our cries, and God is the Lord over the future. Look at verse 12. He describes what this son would be like. He says, he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man against him. He shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. The Lord gives here just a description of the son that she would bear. And we see that description laid out, played out throughout the Scripture. If you look at verse 13, I want you to notice the response. We've so far seen God's part of this, the fact that God pursues, God sees, and God directs those who are abused and afflicted and unknown, feel like they're lost. What's our response to this? Because of this, we must worship the God who cares for us. You can summarize these things. God sees the hurting. God pursues the mistreated. God directs the afflicted. All these point to the fact that God cares, right? God cares for us. God looks at you and he cares about you. He sees your pursuit. He sees your hurting. He pursues you when you flee and he directs you when you don't know what to do next. And God knows us by name. Isaiah 43, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. How does she worship first? She worships the Lord by remembering her encounter with God. Then she called, verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Observe, it's between Kadesh and Bered. This is amazing. She, she here actually names God, gives God a name. God doesn't tell her, my name is. She says, you are the God who sees me. 
You're the God who, who looks upon me. You're the God who, who notices me. She puts down a marker. She says, you are the God who is seeing, the God of my seeing, either the God who sees me or the God whom I have seen. And here she makes a memorial. That's why the well there is called Beher Lahai Roy, which, which has to do with seeing God. And here she says she felt invisible, but yet God saw her. She was not invisible to God. Do you feel invisible? I know a, mo- a lot of moms, you might feel invisible. God sees you and God knows you. And if you've trusted him, you're a child of God and you have forgiveness of your sin. You have redemption. You have a relationship with God himself. And her statement here is a statement of amazement. She has looked upon the one who sees her. Is that really what's happened? Yes. That God has seen her and God has known her means that we should not be afraid. This is where we stand. We notice in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus points this out. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and one of them doesn't fall to the ground apart from your father's will? God knows everything that's going on. But the very hairs of your head, Jesus says, are numbered. God knows you and God sees you. So what are we supposed to do with this information? The very hairs of your head are numbered, therefore do not fear. What was Hagar struggling with in the wilderness? Extreme fear, being alone by herself, away from others. And the God who sees her gave her courage to go back and do what was right. Friend, if you're struggling with fear, then perhaps you need to remember that the God of the universe knows you. He knows who you are, and he loves you, and he knows you so well, and he gave his only begotten son, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That is the gift we have through Jesus Christ. She worshiped God by remembering her encounter with God, and I encourage you to make markers in your life, to make memory markers in your life of things that happen when God intercedes and works in your life. But how did she next worship the Lord? She worshiped the Lord by obeying the Lord. This is a really important point, that one of the most practical ways we can worship God today is by obeying him. You can worship God by acting in obedience. Look at verse 15. See what Hagar does. It says, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. We see obedience here in that Hagar returned to her mistress and to Abram just like she had been commanded. We know this because Abram is the one who names his son Ishmael. She recognizes God had seen her, and she obeys God. And because she obeyed God, she received blessing from God. Note that Hagar worshiped the Lord, and she obeyed his voice. God fulfills his promise to her because Abram names her son Ishmael just like God had promised. Friends, some of us are good at worshiping God in a corporate setting. We come together, and we don't mind singing We don't mind uh, reading the Scripture. We don't mind opening our Bibles and studying the Word of God as it's preached. We don't mind those things at all. But we have a really big problem when it comes to actually doing what God says to do. We struggle. We don't like to obey God. And and we must be ready to recognize that worship is not worship unless it's obedience. We must be obedient people. And she worships the God who cares for her. She recognizes God cares for her. And her response is to worship him, remembering her encounter, and then to obey God. And for those of us who have been hurting, who have been mistreated, who have been afflicted, and many moms like Hagar find themselves in this situation, God sees you, God pursues you, and God directs you. Would you be willing to listen to the God and and obey the God and worship the God who sees you, who pursues you, 
and who directs you. He sees you now, and He loves you even when it feels like you're invisible. He pursues you. John chapter 4 tells us a story of the woman at the well, and there's an amazing little point in there where Jesus says, the Lord is seeking such worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth, that God is looking for people who will worship Him. Will you be one of those who God pursues? And God also directs us through His Word. I wonder this morning, will you worship Him by remembering Him and by obeying Him and allowing the Lord to direct your life? I don't know where you are and how discouraged you might be or how hurting you might be. Maybe you've had a very difficult year. Maybe the Lord has has allowed very, very difficult circumstances to come into your life, and you look at your life and you say, I do not like where I am. I do not like the fact that things are worse now than they were. God sees you, God pursues you, and God wants to direct you. I wonder today, would you submit to that God who loves you so much? I wonder if you would bow your head and your heart and you would say, Lord, I know that you care for me. Whatever the situation is in your life, we need to be a people who worship God and love him because of all that he's done for us. Would you bow your head with me? Father, we thank you for this short story in the book of Genesis about this woman named Hagar who was abused and mistreated. And yet, through all of this, she got to experience an interaction with the angel of the Lord, and she got to see her Lord, see part, and see this beauty of you, Lord, speaking to her, and she knew that she was known, she knew that she was seen. Lord, we thank you for the mothers in our lives, the mothers who have invested and spent so much time and, and were, were tireless in their training and love for us. We're thankful, Lord. But I think especially of those moms, maybe many young moms today who are in our church, we have a lot of people in our church who fit this description. Lord, you know them. You know their hearts. You know their fears. You know their struggles. You know their difficulties. And there are many people, not just women, there are men too who feel this way, who feel invisible, who feel like they've been mistreated, or who who look at their lives and see themselves as a victim of many circumstances. And sometimes we are. We are mistreated by others. We are abused or manipulated or used. But yet, still in all that, Lord, we can know and be confident that you, the God who loves us, is pursuing us. You are the one who sees us. So I pray that today we would stop making excuses for our disobedience and we would submit our hearts fully to you and recognize that you love us deeply, that you care for us and see us. And I pray that every person would recommit ourselves to being a worshiper, being someone who worships the Lord God, the one who cares, who sees, and who pursues. Thank you, Lord, for your work in our hearts. And I pray now as we have this time of quiet that we would we would reflect on our lives and we would be willing to submit all of it to you, the one who guides us and protects us, who feeds us and nourishes us. We thank you for your love for us in Jesus' name. Amen.